invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Good to sing praises to the Lord, rejoice in what the Lord has done for us, and I trust that we ever are a singing people, Lord help us to be a singing people. The devil would want nothing more than to steal away our song, remove from us the, the joy that he has instilled in our hearts, the new song of the soul set free, the redeemed of the Lord who have something to sing about. Whenever I was uh, working in the engineering firm and they're surrounded by unbelievers and sometimes you would sing and they wouldn't like it too much. <laughs> and every time I would have a complaint about my singing in, from those that I worked with, I would just start singing that the children of the Lord have a right to shout and sing. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar with that hymn, but uh, I would just sing that to rub in my right to sing and rejoice in what the Lord has done for us. And we should be a singing people. I would go around when I worked in a supermarket, just newly saved, and of course you can't evangelize. But uh, one of the things I would do is up, going up and down the aisles, going about my work, and I'd be like humming or whistling Amazing Grace, just trying to plant thoughts into people's minds of familiar tunes, familiar uh, hymns that they may have known, but they're utterly lost. But uh, you're trying to kind of put something, a thought in there that the Lord may use, even though you're not able to actively evangelize by whatever means, beloved, whatever means, rejoicing and using it as a testimony to the world around us that has very little joy, very little contentment, very little of what Christ alone can supply. So we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, reading again from verse 1. And this is all one section. We have taken from verses 1 through 11 under the heading, under the title, The Day of the Lord. We're coming to the third, and I trust the final message dealing with these verses. So let's hear the Word of God from chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. and They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith 
and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Amen. Trusting the Lord will bless the reading. And in a moment, our consideration in this passage, this is the Word of God. May it be of benefit to your hearts. Let us pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the Word of God. We pray that we would never grow indifferent to it. And we pray that the liberties that we still enjoy in this land that allow us to gather and open it together may be preserved for generations until the very return of Christ. We ask, O God, that there might always be a godly seed that will rise up treasuring the Word in this land. We pray that would always be the case even in this congregation. Lord, we ask that Thou wilt be pleased to bless us today. Cause the Word to live with power in our hearts. Cause our souls to be enlivened and strengthened by the Word that we consider. And grant, O God, that the Holy Ghost will descend in power upon us, causing the eyes of every child of God to be enlightened. And those outside of Christ, they would have that fresh and new experience they've never had before of regenerating grace, of the scales being removed altogether, that they might behold Christ and run to Him for refuge and for safety. So hear us and give help to the preacher. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been considering this portion now, as we've said, for a couple of weeks. And the Apostle Paul has brought to light the perspective that the people of God ought to have in relation to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. While there was some query about the timing of that, the Apostle Paul quickly moves over that at the beginning of this chapter and and doesn't allow any time to be given to reflect over that particular point. But it doesn't mean that he moves over it altogether and basically says it's not important. The doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ doesn't really matter and just then moves on to some other aspect. He does spend some time dealing with aspects that relate to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, answering some of the queries that they had from the end of chapter 4, as we've dealt with already, the query about what happens to those that believe in Christ, that are redeemed by the blood of Christ, but they die before the Lord returns. What happens there? And what happens then in relation to the day of the Lord? What's, what's, what's that all about? And especially, when's it going to occur? And so you see again how Paul doesn't deal with that. He doesn't get into that, but he does make application of those things that are necessary. And we said last week, that it's not so much about predicting, it's about preparing. Are you ready? When Christ returns, are you ready? That is the material point. If you're not ready, whatever else you may study, whatever else you may learn, it's really irrelevant if you yourself are not ready for when Christ will return. For He will return, and He will come. And then the next epistle The Apostle Paul will deal with it again. And he will say that he will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God 
and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even there, when he deals with that, he's giving more information and detail that helps us understand even the point that we've made, that this is a a one-event thing that's going on here. This is not a two-stage event. Christ isn't coming once in the clouds to gather his people, those of the church, away with himself, and then returning again later on to finish the job. This is all going to happen at the one and the same time. We dealt two weeks ago with the significance of the day of the Lord, the significance of it, uh, showing that it speaks both of judgment and of salvation, judgment of unbelievers, and the complete salvation of the saints, ushered in by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we dealt with the suddenness of it, verses 1 through 4, that really focus in on that. And again, let us not ignore that, because next week, God willing, we'll move away. We'll not be dealing with this so much anymore. But let us just press that point again. This is going to happen suddenly. If you're not ready, you're going to be caught unawares. And so he presses this aspect that you know the Lord's coming is as a thief in the night, verse 2. And when there is this general statement of peace and safety, and this is much of the language and the mentality of the world in general, sudden destruction will come upon them. And it will come swiftly and unrelentingly and without any recourse. Like a travail upon a woman with child, they shall not escape. You can't escape the travail If you're going to bring a child into this world, a woman is going to experience this. She can't skip it. This is just part of the whole process. And they will not escape the fact that Christ will return in judgment upon the ungodly. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And we thought then of the separation because of it. Verse 5, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And we were thinking yesterday morning, in the early morning prayer meeting, uh, that, uh, about this aspect in 1 John chapter 1, that the fellowship that the people of God enjoy, and I began, began to consider that in light of even this text and this passage. Flip over just for a moment into 1 John chapter 1, and you see this, this distinction that there is between those that are of the light rather than of the darkness. And in John's epistle, 1 John chapter 1 He deals with it in relation to fellowship with God. And in chapter 2, he deals with it in relationship to the people of God. And this is the mark of those that are in the light. That they are in fellowship both with God and with God's people. And so, we read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So there's the point. God is light. Anyone who says he's in fellowship with God is also of the light, not of the darkness. We go to chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11. You see how this becomes applicable in our relationship with the people of God. Verse 9, He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. 
But he that hateth his, hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. So you see an emphasis even on this aspect of, of light and darkness that John brings out in his epistle as well, in relation to our relationship with God and our relationship with his people. And, and Paul is bringing that out here as well. You're all the children of light, verse 5 of chapter 5. You're all of the light, the children of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. This, this distinction is something that isn't new to the New Testament either because in Isaiah chapter 60 Verse 1 and 2, we read there, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. This is true of the redeemed of the Lord. There is this light that dawns upon them, this Christ himself. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And so the prophet, bringing that truth out as well. In Isaiah 60, he's, he's showing this contrast that those that are the Lord's people are of light and of the day. And those that are in the world, gross darkness is over them. It's a spiritual condition. But we came then last Lord's Day to consider the study of the day of the Lord. And we got just, there's four sub-points here that I'm dealing with, and we dealt with just the first one that the day of the Lord teaches us to be watchful. Verses 6 and 7, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. And we emphasize the watchfulness that is necessary for us if we're truly prepared for the day of the Lord. But we come then to consider that the day of the Lord also teaches us to be faithful, not just watchful, but also faithful. Verse 8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and foreign helmet the hope of salvation. Literally, this verse reads, But let us being of the day, not just who are of the day, but being of the day, be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and in helmet the hope of salvation. I think it's important to see some of the real language and the, the grammar that, that comes forth from this text to, to help us understand exactly what's going on. In fact, until I saw that, I was struggling with really interpreting this text and understanding its significance. One commentator points out here that Paul is making both a statement about our identity and our responsibility. And he translates the verse this way, Since we are children of the day, clothed with the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, let us be sober. He puts the sobriety at the end because really that's the exhortation. The rest of it, the rest of the text is not so much an exhortation as it is a presentation of what is already true. It's like what we said last week in relation to verse 5. You're all the children of light and the children of the day. This is true already. It's not something you develop. It's not something you become. It's not something that you, you grow into, as it were, in terms of, well, you're, you're kind of on a process of being saved, and over time you, you metamorphosize into being a child of the day and of, and of the light. That's not the case. Those in Christ are of the day and are of light. That's fact. That's something that is experienced and is positionally true because of what Christ has done 
for His people. And the same is true in verse 8. The greater portion of the text is laying out what is true. That we already essentially have the breastplate of faith and love on, and the hope of salvation, the helmet of the hope of salvation. These things are, are already true of us because we are of the day. Let us who are of the day, being of the day, because we are children of the day, we are clothed with this breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Therefore, let us be sober. If you can read it that way. And that's really the thrust of the text. And what Paul is therefore doing again is laying out, here's what's true about you, beloved. And as we said last week, when you know what is true about you, it begins to influence how you live. It helps you. And we said last week, in relation to a soldier, once someone becomes a soldier, once they know they're a soldier, once they have that, once they're, they're in that, it, it has an impact. It changes how they live. And how much more applicable does that become whenever we read this text and it's saying to you, you have this already. You're wearing a breastplate and you're wearing a helmet. Be aware of that. And it should form and navig- help you navigate your life. It shapes how you live. It helps you to understand the environment in which you're living and how, therefore, to face the world in which you're living. You understand, well, I have this armor on. Why have I this armor on? Why have I this helmet? Why have I this breastplate? What is all of this? And it helps us then to understand how we are to live. So, again, when you're reading this, it's not Paul saying you need to put these things on as if you don't have them on. You have them on already. Paul elsewhere exhorts Christians in similar language in light of the Lord's return. And the thrust of Paul's emphasis in these various passages, and we'll turn to some of them in just a moment, is always to encourage Christians to put off sin in various forms and put on that which is pleasing to God. In other words, get rid of that which is an opposite to what you really are and Reflect upon that which you have and, and kind of additionally put it on in your mind. Realize what you're wearing. Now, for example, if you turn over to Romans chapter 13, you will see this. Romans chapter 13. The end of this epistle, or near the end of it, Paul begins to get very practical. In Romans 13, the end of the chapter, he deals with armor. Just like what we're reading about, breastplate, helmet, and Romans 13, verse 12. And again, you can see the context is in relation to the Lord's return. You can see verse 11, very similar language even with what we're dealing with. We'll read from verse 11, in fact. And that knowing the time, now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Have we been dealing with that? Yes, we have. That was the emphasis last Lord's day. The emphasis on watchfulness, not being sleepy, not drifting. And so it's high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So there you have an exhortation, as it were. There's, there's encouragement to put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on 
The Lord Jesus Christ make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Now, he's writing to the church. Have these people put on Christ? Yes. They've put on Christ. These people are justified in the sight of God. They have appropriated the gospel to themselves. You could say very aptly, they have put on Christ. But by the same token, it is not wrong for Paul then to exhort them, put on Christ. In other words, having taken Christ, having made Christ your own, continue then to understand what you are as a Christian. Mold your life by the reality that there is in your life. As a believer, you have Christ, you've taken Christ, put on Christ. And so, it's put in other language in verse 12, put on the armor of light. The armor of light is, you could, there's distinction, but it's almost, you could say, synonymous with putting on Christ. That there are things that you're putting on because of what you are, you have them, and at the same time, you're still appropriating more of it into your life. And so, there's exhortation that helps us understand what is true, and yet still pushes us to endeavor to seek for more. And that's why that commentator says that there's both a statement about identity and responsibility. There's something that is true here, as well as something that is part of our responsibility. It's what I have, but it's also what I must do. This idea of putting on Christ and putting off things, you find it in various other portions. I'll read some passages for you. Galatians 3, verse 27 For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, if you were already baptized, that is not talking about water baptism here, but we're talking about that which is that that standing that you have in Christ, that you're you're joined to Christ, you're in union with Christ, you're justified before God through Christ, as many of you to whom that applies have put on Christ. You've put them on. That's already true of you. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, he exhorts that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And the new man is that which reflects Christ, that which is pure righteousness and true holiness. And the exhortation is to put this on. Now, had they already got it? Yes. There was a sense in which it was already true, but they're ongoing in an ongoing way, an ongoing pattern. They're, they're seeking to bring more of the reality of what they have to bear in their lives. Colossians 3, verses 8 through 10. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's something that's done. You've, you've done this already. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So even the emphasis in Colossians is more upon that which has already taken place, while in Ephesians, dealing with the same truths, the emphasis seems to be upon continuing to do this very thing. Now, it is not. It is not saying that salvation is progressive. 
It's not saying that in the sense of justifying the, the fact that we are justified over a period of time. We are justified in a moment of time. We are saved in a nanosecond where we are in, 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 a, in a moment, just like the Lord's return in the twinkling of an eye. You are joined to Christ and you have this experience of being liberated from the condemnation that is upon you because of sin. And it's all removed and you're free from that. And there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time then, there's a continual experience of understanding what I have in Christ and appropriating this. Beloved, this is so critical to grasp. To realize what you have and then to work out what is to be true about you. These two things. If you look at Paul's epistles chronologically, then we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as the first time Paul is talking about this kind of armor and putting these things on. And so when he says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Let us realize we, are, we have put these things on, put, continuing to put them on, put them on and we do so because this reflects the sober mind. Now what does it mean to put on these things that he depicts as a breastplate and as a helmet? Faith and love and hope. Everything I've set up to now is saying that these things are already present. And yet, in one sense, they are to still be developed in their life. And you should not be surprised that that is the case. If you go back to chapter 1 and the beginning of the epistle, you will see that these same things, faith, love, hope, are already in the believers in this church. They're already present. Verse 3, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, and labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. You see it? Faith, love, hope. And he's remembering, without ceasing, what is already on display. He has witnessed it. Everyone can see it. As you look at the congregation, you can see faith. You can see love. You can see hope. It's on display. They have put those things on. And you may rightly say, they're wearing this breastplate. And they're wearing this helmet. And they're living. They're living exactly what Paul is exhorting them and encouraging them to do and to live. And so when we come to chapter 5, as we're emphasizing this point, and it's, it's, again, it's vital that we grasp it. This is true already. You, this is true of every child of God. They have already put on the breastplate of faith and love. And they already have on the helmet of hope. That, that's already there, the hope of salvation. That is already existing. If it was not true, you wouldn't be a Christian. You wouldn't be saved. You wouldn't be enjoying the blessings of the gospel. You wouldn't know your sins forgiven. You wouldn't have peace with God. So what is this faith, this love, and this hope of salvation? Well, back when we dealt with chapter 1, verse 3, we considered the faith in three ways. Faith is first resting on Christ. 
It is also repentance from sin, and it is also rich, being rich in good works. And the emphasis is no doubt more on the latter, their work of faith. The, 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 the work that is produced by their faith, essentially, is the point. And so you, you can see that, that how they live is because of the faith that they have. And what Paul is saying here in chapter 5 is, put that on. No, it's already there. You're putting that on. But continue. This is an ongoing thing of putting on the breastplate of faith. That you never stop doing this. You don't give up. You don't take a hiatus. You don't take a break or a vacation from this. You're constantly doing this. And it's all in light of the Lord's return. If there is the day of the Lord... If Christ is returning in power and in glory, then those that are His who are of the day and are of the light are continuing to live, working out their faith, a faith that works. And so they're busily engaged in their responsibilities, bringing glory to God. And this is a breastplate for them. This protects their heart. It protects them as as part of the warfare. The person who doesn't live this way, leaves themselves exposed. They're not ready for the return of the Lord. They're going to be slain by that, that great and awful event. But those that are ready, those that are prepared, reflect their preparation by having this breastplate of faith that works. What way does it work? It works in many ways. I guess the question you ask yourself is, does my faith work? Does it? Does it work? Does my faith in Christ work? What I mean by that is, does it influence things in your life? Does it govern decisions? Does it, does it not help you navigate through life? Your faith is integral to what you do and where you go and how you respond to the things that are going on around you. In times, again, decision-making, very much this comes to the fore. Why am I making this decision, or, or what decision should I make? And, and we come, and our, our faith works in the midst of that. Our faith is directing our hearts, directing our minds, helping us understand what is the will of God here. When we are standing before something that is going on, maybe something sinful, or maybe something that's right, do I align myself with what is good? Do I withdraw from that which is evil? Is my faith working? It doesn't work in those moments, perhaps, even that you did not foresee, does your faith work? When you see a need, does your faith work? (laughs) You're tempted to, we're talking about this this morning, and you just, like the Good Samaritan, what the Lord taught there, and you you have the danger of being the priest and the Levite, and you, you pass over on the other side because your faith doesn't work. In that moment, in that time, there's a man in need. Your faith doesn't work. Whatever the professed faith that you have, the priest, the Levite, it doesn't work in that moment. But the Samaritan, his faith works. He sees. It launches him into a response. His faith works. And this is what is true for those that are prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their life will reflect this. Not perfectly, but it will reflect it. It will will have evidence of it. There will be signs of it because it is there. It is true about every child of God. And it becomes more and more true as they grow in grace. Love as well. Now he spoke in chapter 1 of their labor 
of love, the labor that is produced by love. Again, why are you doing what you're doing? You're doing it begrudgingly, doing it out of pure fear. Why, why do you do it? For those that are prepared for the Lord's return, they are doing it in love. And again, this is part of what makes up the breastplate as the imagery is given here in this passage. As, as they move in a course of, of love, motivating them and moving them and guiding them, instructing them, and this is reflecting those that are ready for Christ's return. And you may ask the question, well, why is it the breastplate of faith and love? Why are they pulled together this way? Well, because of their interconnectedness. John Gill, the Baptist preacher from England, said, these two graces go together. Faith works by love, and love always accompanies faith. As there can be no true faith where there is no love, so there is no true love where faith is wanting. And so they're so connected that they are represented by the same garment, the same breastplate that is here spoken of by Paul. And foreign helmet, the hope of salvation. As we've said, these people are already wearing this helmet. They are already thinking about this. I mean, again, just, just transition, just get your mind back to the context of this church. There were powers in that city doing everything they could to prevent those that had professed faith from continuing on in the faith. The Jews were doing everything in their power. Those unbelieving Jews were trying to, to stall the church and, and stop the church and hinder the church and, and do everything they could. And you go back to Acts 17, you can see this for yourself. There was no help or encouragement whatsoever. So why did they continue on? Why? Why did they persevere through it? Why did they suffer? Why perhaps even some of them may have been martyred for this very cause? They had taken Christ and they were not going to let go. Why? Because they were filled with hope. Hope. They wore it as a helmet. The hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. The, the grounding that through Christ I find acceptance with God. When a man has a conviction that through Christ he will stand before God, when he knows that he is clothed in Christ, why would he ever give up? He's going to stand before God anyway. And should a man threaten him, threaten to take his life, pushing him, driving him, trying to encourage him, give up, recant, turn away from this, but he knows that he will stand before God, that he wears with this hope, no, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. He is the hope of my salvation, and I wear it as a helmet, prominently, as the defense against all assailants, all attacks. He knows what Christ has done for him, and this church understood that. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation, their hope in Christ there's a salvation that's found in Christ, which he goes on to elaborate on a little, a little more in verse 9 and verse 10. So, you have this position. Let us read 
another, one of the other translations we give again. Since we are children of the day, this is what we are, clothed with the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We are clothed this way already. This is what we're doing. This is how we're living. This is what was true, chapter 1, verse 3. This is what can be seen in this church. Therefore, let us be sober. He's arguing the case again of what he's already laid out in verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So I would say to you again, verse 8 is another way presenting what is true of every child of God and the application is as we made it last Lord's Day. We are to be watchful. We are to be sober. We are to have a mentality of, of, of thinking in light of eternity and the return of Jesus Christ so that when all the frivolities and all the garbage of the world and all the temptation and all that which would allure the flesh, when it comes, when it comes to attack, when it comes to draw you away, child of God, you have upon you this breastplate and this helmet and it protects you. And because it is already on you and you're wearing it, it makes you sober. A man does not put on armor in a flippant and trite way. He puts it on because he knows there's a battle. There's a warfare. Even if he has to go to sleep and he keeps that helmet on and that breastplate, he doesn't take it off. And when he's uncomfortable, he knows the reason why he's wearing it. At any moment, he may have to get up and engage in the battle and he'll wear it anyway because he doesn't want to be led astray. He's sober. The one who is not sober takes it off. The one who is not sober casts it aside. And many do. Many in the visible church. And they profess to be Christ's. But eventually you see them cast off the breastplate. You don't see them working out their faith. You don't see them moved by love. You don't see them laying hold upon the hope of salvation that is in Christ alone. They just toss it off and it doesn't seem to matter anything to them. And they're not ready. Not ready for the return of Christ. They're not living in light of His return. They're not living soberly. They're not being watchful. And they're giving evidence to the fact that they have never known the regenerating power of the Spirit of God in their lives at all. So the exhortation in verse 8 is as verse 6. Be sober. Why? Because of what he says is true. Because we're of the day, and we have put these things on, therefore let us be sober. And yet, we're still putting them on, we're still keeping them on, we're developing them. There may be questions about, you know, you turn to Ephesians 6 and you say, well, there it's a breastplate of righteousness, and why is it not that here? The, the point, I think there's too much, there's, there's a danger in making too much of the differences between Ephesians 6 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. He doesn't give the whole armor here. He makes a point, and he is driving home the point that this is what believers have, and this is how this reflects those that are ready, and he, he's, he centers upon faith, hope, and love, and just gives them this, this dress, as it were, that reflects these things. His point really is that you're called to warfare, 
You're ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have this attire for battle. And if one is in Christ, they're awaiting for the arrival of the king. And they're wearing these garments in doing so. But don't make too much of the differences between Ephesians 6 and here. Thirdly then, the day of the Lord teaches us to be grateful. Not only does it teach us to be watchful, faithful, but to be grateful. Verses 9 and 10. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. God hath not appointed us to wrath. What do you think when you read the word wrath? Some of you have been part of this church for many years. You've been well taught and you think of it in the proper context. But if you're reading this and you didn't have much of an understanding, you might think, wrath? God appointing people to wrath? I thought God was a God of love. What's this business about wrath? But the reality is when you read through the Word of God, you, you can't remove the fact that there is wrath. The Lord Jesus Christ said of those who have not believed are living in a condition of unbelief, a state of unbelief, that the wrath of God abides upon them. That's Jesus Christ. And throughout the Word of God, you will find various references to wrath. In fact, everyone who is born into this world is a child of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. We're children of wrath not pleasant. I know you don't want to hear that. You don't want to come up, come to church on a Sunday morning and be told that you're a child of wrath by nature, but that's what you are. You either, if you change it, you change it not because you're changing the truth, but you're, you're, you're changing what you want to believe. It doesn't make the truth any different. This is true. We are born in such a condition, Paul writes, Ephesians 2, you're a child of wrath. That's what you are. Even those of you who have been on the Christian road for many years and you're saved, you were at one time a child of wrath. In fact, that's the context of Ephesians 2. Wrath is an important concept. God is a God, not just of love, but of wrath. In fact, properly understood, you can't have love without wrath. If you truly love something, even think about it in your own context, when there's real, passionate love for something or someone, often you will find the contrast of wrath, or at least coming alongside that, wrath, when something that is precious to you is under attack or under threat. You'll feel wrath. God is a God of wrath. There's no avoiding it. What Paul says here to the church, to those who believe, those who have these garments on, God hath not appointed us to wrath. He's not. He has not done that. He has not appointed us to wrath. The dispensationalist understanding of this text is that this wrath corresponds with the calamities of the great tribulation period. Thus, again, the church is whisked away before all of this. They're all all gone. We're gone. That's their understanding of this text. The church disappears before this wrath. So we obtain salvation as their understanding. That salvation is the rapture. We all disappear, and this wrath is the great tribulation period. But that is not the case. Again, this is, this is all one event. And the calamities of this world occur throughout the ages, beloved. They, they happen all the time. There may be an increase of calamities, 
coming to and approaching the Lord's return, but the Lord has never, ever removed His people from calamity. Never. That's not what this passage is saying. He's never taken His people away from the calamity and the sorrows of this life. Our Presbyterian forefathers understood this. When you read about the Scottish Covenanters and the awful, awful persecution and the horrors of that period, you have, of course, following that, the the Glorious Revolution, 1690. And after that, after that, in 1691, is the first time we have the use of the burning bush as the emblem of the Presbyterian Church. And they had, in the Latin, translated below it, that which means, yet it was not consumed. And that's what the Presbyterian, our forefathers, understood. That after this horrendous wave of persecution for decades, where hundreds and thousands had been lost because of persecution against them, and the church was under threat, trying powers trying to quash it all together. That the analysis just after, when freedom was brought and liberty was regained, they saw in the burning bush an imagery of the church itself burning, yet not consumed. The Irish Presbyterians would later change the little slogan or inscription below it as we have adopted here which means burning but flourishing. Burning but flourishing. The church is always under persecution. Always. She is always under attack. And she will suffer tribulation to the very end. But this is the reality. She will flourish nonetheless. Praise to God. He will continue to uphold her. And though there will be trying days and difficult days, this this is not telling us here in verse 9 and 10 that we're going to be whisked away before tribulation. The church will have trying, difficult, hard days, but she will be in the midst of being burned. She will flourish regardless. She will continue on. How many more evidences do we need to this? How much more proof through history do we need to grasp this? Let us therefore not fear what will happen in about a year's time and all that leads up to it. God is in control. Christ is on the throne. And though the church may suffer as she is suffering, even presently, there's not a week that goes by, but there's not some kind of news that in some way discourages the people of God as we see the trajectory of the country in which we live. And yet, as we, we, we wonder what, what's going to happen, is this, is this persecution going to increase? Will it begin to not just touch upon some of the things that have always stood before us as, as sacred things that we, that we the marriage and other institutions, are these, all these things going to be distorted and taken away and corrupted by the vain and ignorant philosophies of men? Will it get worse? Will it get to the point, as we prayed this morning, even 
thinking of, of God preserving the liberty to open the Word of God, will they attack that? Will that come? I tell you, beloved, should it get to the very worst it has ever been, the church will burn yet flourish. Always is the way. So we need not fear this. And the whole point of verse 9 isn't that we should look at something that's going to happen in the future and be fearful of it. The whole point is to encourage us in relation to what is true of the people of God. God has not appointed us to wrath. We are not going to experience the undiluted wrath of God in judgment. We sang as our last hymn the paraphrase of Romans chapter 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord because God has appointed us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep and again this connects actually this portion because some people they put a great disconnect between the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 4, but you can see through verse 10 that he is actually connecting it with what he dealt with in chapter 4, verse 15, those that are asleep. And he is pulling it all together now, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Whether we're alive or we die before the Lord returns, we will live together with him. It will be absent from the body, present with the Lord. It is this anticipation that to be with Christ is far better. Philippians 1.23, this is what we have, beloved. And it makes us exceedingly grateful. Does it not? Does it not? That the day of the Lord is going to come, but we are safe. Why are we safe? Because of what you're doing? Because of your attendance here and your prayers because of your good work? No, no. He has appointed us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you obtain salvation. It's by Christ. And should there be someone here this morning that for some reason hasn't quite gotten this, and you think you're obtaining salvation by your works, by your efforts, by your desire to do what is right, you think you're earning salvation? You have to be disillusioned of that this morning. Look at the text. You obtain it by the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. As soon as you put some weight on your works that contributes something to your salvation, you're saying the cross of Christ is not enough. If anyone begins to think, well, I know Jesus died for us, but I also have to do this and do that to obtain salvation. No! No, a thousand times no. He died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with Him. He did the work. He died an atoning death for us. He paid the penalty. He satisfied God's holy demands. He appeased the wrath for those that trust Him. He turns it away. So Christ turns that wrath away from all those that are in union with Him. Yet the wrath remains for those who are outside of Christ. Where are you? Where are you? 
My time is gone, so I'll just make a passing comment on the final verse here, verse 11, that the day of the Lord teaches us to be helpful. It teaches us to be helpful. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Comfort yourselves together. Exhort and edify is what it is. This is a conscious act. We are to exhort and edify each other. This is how we continue to live in light of the Lord's return. Exhorting and edifying. I'm not going to turn to it, but Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, you may put just in your margin there in relation to that. You can see a similar exhortation there. In light of the Lord's return, we are to live in a certain way. In other words, really, if we could put it this way, don't just depend upon the Lord, depend upon each other. There is a great dependence upon the Lord, of course. But Paul is also saying, look, depend upon each other as well. Comfort yourselves together. Edify, exhort, encourage. Build yourselves up in light of the Lord's return. It's an awful thing to live the Christian life in such a way that you think you have to go it alone. Or to have such a sense that you cannot be vulnerable to ask, to ask for help would be to expose yourself to scrutiny. To come to the pastor and say, Pastor, I need, I need help here. Or we need help. And to suffer in silence. Not knowing how to navigate what you're going through and what you're dealing with. That is not scriptural. And if, and if the, the spirit of our Christianity is such that we hide away, that we're always running away in the midst of our struggles, we are, we are going to struggle. And Paul's point is, don't, don't do this. Christ died for you all. All those that are in Him, Christ died for you. You're going to live together with Him. For that reason, comfort yourselves. You're all justified by the same means. None of you are holy. None of you are perfect. None of you have it all together. None of you are, are living it absolutely perfectly the way it should be. So, exhort, encourage, edify. And thankfully, he's able to say here, even as also you do. I, I, I know you're doing it. I encourage you to continue on. Beloved, this is the way. Not to hide, not living with a veneer. I'm not saying you, you kind of air your dirty laundry either. This, this, to put on a veneer, to act like everything is well when it's not. To not pick up the phone and say, would you come, come and see me? Not talk to a brother or sister and tell them exactly where you are, or at least say, would you pray for me? Get together even and, and have coffee and have a time of prayer. This, 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 this is not the will of God. Hiding ourselves away. In light of the Lord's return, He's going to gather us all together to be with Him. Let us learn how to live life here together. No, just as we will live together with Him in glory. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord's return is very edifying. The whole subject that Christ is coming back. Just meditating upon it. Considering it.
thinking of what's true about it and the fact that it will come to pass. Being comforted by the reality that we're ready. Whether we live or sleep, we will be with Him. Meditate on these things, beloved. Encourage your hearts. You're in Christ. He's not appointed you to wrath. If you're bearing a heavy load this morning and you're wondering, is God judging me? Is God angry with me? Look, God's anger was extinguished at the cross. He has not appointed you to wrath. There is no wrath. God is not angry with you. In that sense, God is not judging you in that way. He may discipline lovingly for which we should bless His name because it proves that we're His children. But He doesn't punish because Christ has paid for it all in full. The punishment was poured out upon Him. Therefore, there's no wrath just salvation. Our God and Father, we pray, help us to grapple with these things, to rest in them. And may they help us as we live through this world. Keep at the forefront of our minds that Christ is returning. Help us with this. We are prone to forget Lord, we pray for the grace and the help to remember and to live every day in light of these truths. We're so thankful that Christ has appointed us to obtain salvation, that we are in Him and we're safe from the storm of the wrath of God. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. Bless each of us here this morning. And should there be some that are struggling, and some that are hiding, and some that are wary about opening up and being honest about what they're dealing with, we pray, God, that Thou wilt help us as a body, indeed, revive in this church that sense of sharing our lives together and upholding and helping one another and being able to encourage, exhort, and edify the people of God in a way that honors Christ. Be with us this afternoon. Bring us back again this evening. We pray for more of Thy presence. We pray for a sense of Thy presence in our homes, even around our dining room tables. O oh God, be with us. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit, be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.